0: Welcome to Paper Team, a podcast about television writing and becoming a TV writer. I'm Alex Friedman, AKA TV Calling. Today we are bringing you our second live Paper Team event, which we hosted at WonderCon 2018. This time we moderated a panel about adapting popular IPs to television and to discuss the topic we invited an amazing assortment of TV writers and producers including Michael Perry, Ray Utnachit, Kai Wu, Brita Lundin and Colleen McAllister. Let's now go live to room 209 in the Anaheim Convention Center. Welcome to We for TV writing shows based on popular IP. Yeah. I'm Alex Friedman. I'm Nick Watson. And we are the host of a TV running podcast called Paper Team. Thank you. Uh, which is kind of like a poor man's version of Script
1: Notes meets Children of Tendu. Yeah, it's a weekly podcast and this episode is being recorded live and you can go and check it out at www.paperteam.co.co. We did not have the money for the comm. <laughs>
0: All right, let's begin with some questions to our esteemed panelists over here.
1: So to start us off, uh, could we just go down the line and introduce yourself and let us know what shows you've worked on and what you're on currently? And also, uh, as a follow-up, what's your favorite IP currently on TV?
2: I'm um, Colleen, hello. Is there a buzzing, or is it just in my head? It's the buzzing, but okay. I think it's not. We're going to roll with it. Um, <laughs> roll I work at Hasbro, so I work on a bunch of different IP shows. Equestria Girls, which is a spin-off of My Little Pony, coming on to My Little Pony soon. Uh, Littlest Pet Shop, a show called Hanazuki that takes place on a moon planet, and it's nuts. Um, before TV, I worked in features on the Minions movies, Despicable Me 3, Sing, Secret Life of Pets, all that good stuff, and my favorite IP that's on TV right now is
3: Riverdale. <laughs> <laughs> I've heard good things. Um, my name is Britta Lundine. I write on the TV show Riverdale. Uh, it's on the CW. This is my first TV show writing job. Uh, I also uh, wrote a young adult novel called Ship It, and there's a book. Oh, there it is. <laughs> I put in. Uh, uh, I'm just going to leave that there, so you can just like gaze upon the cover. My favorite IP project probably right now is um, Handmaid's Tale. Ooh. You don't have to cheer for it; it's like more of a like oh kind of a show, <laughs> but you can just like
4: feel it in your bones. Oh, Handmaid's Tale.
3: Handmaid's Tale.
4: Uh, my name is Ray Utarnatchet, and I currently Ooh. write on a Ooh. show called uh, DC's Legends of Tomorrow. Ooh. And, and um, I've written a, for a couple other. I mean, I. Did a freelance on The Flash when Kai was there. I am currently also um, doing time on Supergirl, um, and um, my favorite IP right now is no joke, probably Riverdale. <laughs> but as a second choice, I would say I Zombie.
5: Uh, my name is Kai, and um, I'd worked on Hannibal in The Flash before. Currently, I'm on Deception, which is this magic show with a cop, sexy magic cop, who we call it, hot <laughs> people. Um, the, my favorite IP. should I say Riverdale? I feel like oh, yeah. I, feel like just, uh, <laughs> yeah, I love Riverdale, but I also love Sherlock, so.
6: Hi, my name is Michael Perry. I'm currently working on Altered Carbon on Netflix. <laughs> I love that. Uh, I'm very excited to be on the scene, have the Altered Carbon guy on the same panel with the My Little Pony. (laughs) So my favorite IP, I'm gonna say My Little Pony. (laughs) (laughs) All right, let's get into the the topic at hand.
0: First off, why do you think IPs are so hot right now?
2: (laughs) Were they ever out of style? I don't know. I think that, I mean, at least in terms of the kids' space and, um, and adults who love to watch kids' shows, I think that there's something, when you find that thing that you sort of have that nostalgia for, but also just sort of that touch point of something about that original IP moved you in some way or made you learn, you kind of learned who you were off of some of this stuff. And when you get to reinvent it or come back around, it's sort of like this ownership that you as an audience member get to have the second time around, which I feel like is, is always, that's always in style.
4: <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think Colleen is—I mean—totally right. I mean, on what she said, I didn't—I did one episode of a, a cartoon called Justice League Action, and um, I got so much response from that on social media, more than anything else I've ever written. And you know, I think it has everything to do with the fact that a lot of people who watched it grew up with. Batman, Superman, Wonder Woman as cartoons, and it brings them back. But I also think it, you know a lot of kids today still watch that stuff. So I think you have a sort of multi-generational um, thing. It's just, and I think it's why a lot of people kind of go back to that IP. Well, yeah, and
5: I think also, sorry, uh, also just the idea like for books like Sherlock or like comic books to see those characters bring alive. Like we all have pictures of who they are, but to see like. Wentworth Miller play Captain Cold is quite amazing to see Benedict Cumberbatch play Sherlock. I think just to see a fully realized world. I love that in terms of IP. So
6: I think from the studio network point of view, there's 350 one-hour shows that a writer could be hired on right now, and it helps them break out through the clutter. And also during development, it gives them a point of reference so that when, you, when you're just starting with an original script, it can drift. But when you have a beloved book or a beloved IP, everybody can go, have we achieved that feeling that we got when we saw the original thing and work toward that.
1: So why do you think certain properties make for great television as opposed to a movie or a book? Characters. <laughs> All right, <next> question.
6: <laughs> you watch TV to fall in love with two or three people and then later four or five people and go with them into whatever crazy world that is invented. And you can have the most elaborate world, and it's nothing unless you fall in love with those people in there. And a lot of IP, you have like, when you ask somebody to describe their favorite TV show from childhood or something, they start out talking about the characters.
2: And I think too, even if you think about it from the the feature fr- like franchise perspective too, it's almost like franchises mimic television in the way that a lot of the superhero movies you're watching them for those characters, and you're coming back and back and back for yet another Spider Man mm-hmm. because you're you're sort of in that. So I, I'm went from features into television just because I feel like there is that longer form storytelling thing that we all love, that we gravitate towards, and I think there's a lot of room to play with it, even in the feature space It's sort of starting to mimic a little bit of what happens in the TV space on a huge scale.
4: Yeah, I mean, I think, especially in TV, I think you're right, it is really all about character. I mean, this is not an IP example, but I did work on a show called um, Psych as a script coordinator, and... (laughs) If you guys have ever seen that show, it's a lot of fun, Sean and Gus going on their misadventures, and we realized, I think, maybe season three or something like that, that it didn't really matter what the case was. As long as they got to see Sean and Gus jumping around and acting like fools, that's all they really cared about. So yeah, I mean, it's really all about coming back to the characters you, you fall in love with. So Michael, you brought up
0: the studio and network side of things. Uh, can you guys walk us through the process from a business standpoint of adapting something to television from getting the rights to developing that property and finally
6: making it on air? Sure, If I've developed novels and I've also written original TV pilots. But when you're developing a book or an existing IP, the first step is to get the rights. And for that, you need power and money or a really sweet letter. I one time got the rights with a really sweet letter to an author, but a studio is the people who will finance the show. The network are the people who eventually will air it. And so you usually have a writer who will go to a studio and say, I think this is a brilliant idea for a series, and get the people that are at the place that can make this happen, read all of that, and then have a series of discussions. All TV making and TV writing are a series of discussions and then persuade them. Yeah, this is a great idea. We're going to go out with you to networks and and get them on board. So you're assembling this little team of you got the original property, you have the writer, you have the studio, you have the network and if all goes well, uh you have a show eventually, but it is it is a series of different people that have to be evangelized to about how great the thing that you have is.
2: So at Hasbro, we're sitting on all the rights. <laughs> and Like I work yeah, as an executive there, and basically we have this long library of things that we would love to basically be able to kickstart back into you know TV space or even theatrical space. So what we'll do is we'll sort of sometimes it happens in a couple different ways um, one you know one way is a writer will come in with an amazing take on some board game we forgot we even had in our arsenal and they're <laughs> so passionate and we're like we're doing it call netflix so it's sort of like a little and then netflix is like cool we'll mm, we'll see um, but you really do you get this sort of you kind of are sitting on a sandbox and then you when also, we have a lot of IP that you know about, like Transformers. We make a lot of Transformers shows. And I was developing a Transformers show, and we had, at Hasbro, what's unique too, is we have a toy company that's literally, you know, making product all the time, and they'll say, we need another Transformers show to hit this demographic. Go, go with it. And what we'll do on our side and the exec side, and we'll say, okay, we need to know what our tone is, we know what our sandbox is, we need to have four of these four transformers and we have to highlight this specific thing that's going to eventually make it into toy so we know what our box is and then we go okay the tone is x here's my favorite writers who write in that super self-aware sort of edgy comic sort of action space and then we bring them in and we say okay here's your sandbox tell us what you want to do with the show and then usually by that point we're kind of getting used to how people are at writers it's really tough to work with a company like Hasbro because everyone will give you notes. So we love people who come from the TV space. We love writers who are just super open to trying stuff out and totally fine if something gets cut and we got to start from scratch because that is a lot of times what happens. So then what we do once we found our writer who's super on top of the tone, gets the show, has a vision, and is also really, really cool to work with, (laughs) then we've got our show. And then we start and we pitch it back to the toy team and say, are you okay with this? And then we get the okay from them, and we're greenlit, and then we say, how many seasons do you want? So that's sort of how it works from when you own that library, how you're kind of putting it all together.
1: Awesome. So now that we understand the business side creatively as writers and producers, how do you approach adapting something once you have that material? Where do you start?
3: I gotta say, it sounds, sometimes the scariest thing as a writer is, like, infinite possibilities where, like, you can do a million different things. And it's nice when you have boundaries, like, it's nice, like, you're kind of like a toddler who, like, thrives under, like, very specific circumstances when mom tells you no. So that sounds, like, amazing, actually, where it's, like, you have to do this, this, and this, (laughs) but only under these circumstances. Um, we, ha- we have that a little bit on Riverdale. They have, uh, we're working with established characters that have been around for 75 years. Uh, and we're working in a, a town that's familiar to a lot of people and they're a lot of people's parents and a lot of people's grandparents. Like a lot of people are familiar with Archie and the gang. Um, but we are doing a different spin on it. And so there are certain liberties that we can take. Um, with Riverdale, uh, where it's like, this might not be something that you would see in an Archie comic, but it is something that you'd see on the show Riverdale and the CW. And they're separate canons. So it's fun. We can take the things that are useful to us, but we can also spin things off and make things up if it's not
4: useful. Actually, I have a question for you, because that first season, how did you know where it was too far to go? I mean, because obviously you had Die Hard. No, <laughs> <not too far>. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I mean, yeah, we all saw that first season. There definitely wasn't. But was there any discussion on, like, oh my god, we're going to lose this segment of Archie fans if we, you know, yeah, yeah. show another murder?
3: <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I think as soon as the, the pilot opens, at the end of the pilot, you discover, for those who haven't seen Riverdale, uh, uh, one of the kids who goes to their high school is, like, uh, dead on, on the shores of Sweetwater River and so over the course of season one like good old Archie and Betty and Veronica and Jughead are also they're like having their relationship um, conflicts and all that stuff but they're also solving the murder of their dead classmate Um, and so it was like especially in that first season like a real balancing act of like how much are we going to do like you know Archie wants to start a band and like (laughs) that drama and how much are we going to do like um Betty has to go to to like the insane asylum to like get a clue that's going to solve the murder of the dead kid. Yeah. You know like the the it was a balancing act and I think we There are certain episodes, like even now, when you're in that season two, there's like a serial killer, so like things get darker, Um, and you sort of look back on some episodes, like early in season one, you're like, wow, we really were just doing episodes where like Archie has stage fright, like that was something, that was like a conflict in season one, where like late in season two would be like, no, like no, 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 there's like the stakes are are so much different now. So it was like we were still kind of figuring out the show.
2: Did you get the requirement to like we have to see a burger? and Jughead
3: has to eat it. <laughs> There were no rules. Yeah, no, I mean, our showrunner is an Archie, super fan. So he's tracking all of that stuff. Um, I remember uh, uh, we had written all of season one before the pilot aired. And so I, had, I I sort of was waiting for fan reaction for a long time. And then the, f- the show started airing and I, fans were, like, tweeting me and being like, where is the burger? Jughead <laughs> has not eaten a burger on screen yet. You and it's us. like... And it was something that I hadn't even been tracking. I like brought it up to my show and he was like, oh yeah, no, 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 no it's, it's purpose. Coming. Yeah, it's coming, it's I coming. know when it's coming and it happens at a specific moment. <laughs> awesome. And yes. I was like, oh yeah, it's all, you've, you've got it covered. I'm so sorry for doubting you.
6: Uh, i think to talk about, uh, on Altered Carbon, there are three books. Every writer in the room loves those books. To make them would cost a billion dollars. We'd have a cast of like 5,000 people and it would be 200 hours long. And so a part of it is, is translating the excitement and passion we have for Richard Morgan's books into a great TV series. And so a, a lot of that is, you know, cherry picking this piece and that piece and that piece, and this will all go into an episode. And these are the characters and relationships we want to emphasize. And um, it, there's a lot more adaptation uh, because sometimes we're establishing characters that people aren't familiar with. People are very, you know, I knew Archie, all of those characters in adapting somebody's novel that somebody might not have read, we have to give the best case for those characters right away. And um, the books are dark. (laughs) It's not like the Archie thing where we have to worry about stepping on fans. We we were able to maintain the tone by being on a non-broadcast network.
5: Yeah, and for like Hannibal, I think when Brian Fuller, how he approached it was Hannibal's a beloved uh, novel, so he would actually figure out what the expectation was and twist it. It's like you've, and like in the books, this is how Hannibal gets caught. So we'll have that scene, but that's not actually how he's caught. So like we kind of steered the fans towards that and then still be able to give uh, the fans a surprise. And for Brian, I mean like, and also changing the sex of the characters, Alan Bloom is Alana Bloom, and I think just reimagining that, that's really, he, Brian is super brilliant. He does whatever he wants. So I feel like he, I mean, he's always, almost always right. So I feel like it's um, it's grounded in character, knowing what the fans already know and love, and just making sure we still give them a surprise so that they're not just watching an
2: adaptation of a book.
0: So going down the line, what are some of the notable <laughs> challenges you faced when adapting something for TV?
2: Honestly, uh the big, one of the biggest challenges for us is working so closely with the toy teams. And um, and <laughs> for anyone in this room who is a creative or who devotes their lives to being creative, they are cre- the toy teams are creative, we are creative. Everybody is super passionate about that thing that you create. So there can be a little bit of a tug of war between their very passionate need to have a very, very specific thing happen, like having a cat... <laughs> watch a cat purchase something at a kiosk (laughs) as opposed to, but that character really wouldn't do that and we probably don't need to have her the costume at the at the kiosk to show that the costume is super cool so sometimes I mean but at the end of the day I, we always say like my the favorite part of my job is the fact that I can argue about the color pink for an hour um, but really I think you know that part is a little bit of like you have to kind of learn to work for the UN in a way like you have to kind of hear everyone's voice understand what everybody needs and bring it all together and I as an executive try to protect my writers from that a little bit because as a writer you don't want want to get a thousand notes that are completely ignoring the story and are just telling you what you need to shove in there. So that's sort of our our role a little bit is to kind of protect the story and protect the characters so that they can kind of, you know, be the thing that leads the the story.
3: Um, As I said in season one, we had written the entire first season before it started airing. And so there were decisions that we had made uh, that were like set in stone. Uh, before a single fan had seen the show. Um, and one of those decisions that's like kind of a departure from the comics, if you're a big comics fan, is that Betty and Jughead start dating. And uh, that was something our showrunner had felt like strongly about, That is something he wanted to see. Uh, uh, we shot, that starts happening in ap- episode six, and so there's like seven episodes of Betty and Jughead Uh and, and, and I would just uh, remember f- watching that unfold on TV and being like, I just hope people start shipping this because <laughs> <laughs> this is, <laughs> and, then, and then now it's like one of the biggest ships on Tumblr and it's like massive and if you walk in a Hot Topic, uh, you, you could just, you know, there's so much, there's just a lot of Bughead love in the world. There's, there's other ships on the show and I don't wanna say that Bug, Bughead, uh, you know, there, there's, they're, 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 all, they're all shipping, <laughs> uh, no, no, I'm not playing favorites here. That was just one that I personally was concerned about in season one.
2: Not to mention Shipping, but Ship It is the name of your
3: book. <laughs> oh, that's so, that's, oh, wow. this is actually about like boats and stuff. It's totally different. <laughs> uh, no, no, I think because I, I, I had written this book about fandom and about Comic-Con and about a fan fiction writer, that I, I myself have come from fandom and have felt the, the like, very deep passion about specific shows or specific characters or specific ships. And so I think that's why maybe I was a little more sensitive and more concerned about like, oh God, please let the fans like this than maybe some of my coworkers.
4: You know, in the, in the DC space, um, you know, the main concern really is like, how do we change the characters enough to make them interesting, but keep them the same? Which is really hard. I think you know, like on the marquee shows, like Flash, and Supergirl. I think you're, you're, there's, I mean, you're already kind of, you're always kind of beaten into you, like, no, no, Barry does. This is what Barry does. This is what Kara. Does. This is Supergirl. Supergirl is about hope. So I think it's always a trick to try to like, you know, because storytelling is about change, right? I mean, you start one place and you go to another, but like, how do you do that without breaking the character? too far. I mean, I, I think it just, which is why I think Legends of Tomorrow is a little interesting because nobody really cares about those characters. I'm kidding, no. Uh, but like, for example, like Heatwave, I mean, nobody really cares about Heatwave's backstory, so we could almost do anything.
5: Right, and... I care about Heatwave. <laughs> I, I co-wrote
4: Heatwave. So. <laughs> it's true, I yeah, I know you did. And Captain Cold. And right? Firestorm. Yeah. And I mean, the, the whole idea of like, trying to take Captain Cold and give him an emotional backstory, I mean, I think if you read in mean, the comic books. Sometimes you're like, well, there is, really is no backstory. But so it is. It is a trick of trying to like, you know, see how far you can go.
5: I think for the Flash, it was the abundance of metahumans we had. You know, um, that we can choose from. We had 23 episodes, and there were just so many metahumans to go through and figuring out which one matched our. Because um, for us, we always write with the character first. What is Barry going through? The character journeys and finding the metahumans that would align. With our what the story we're telling, so that um, so that went through like so on our boards in the flash we had like we started like sixty each metahuman the name their real name which version Earth one or two and then their powers and you know bit by bit it was just it's like a puzzle piece it's like Mad Libs not Mad Libs I don't know what it's called those <laughs> things that where you mix and mass together to see which one works so I think that was the challenge for first season
6: I think that the big challenge adapting Altered Carbon is too much good material. And having to throw out like five great scenes for every one that stays, otherwise it would be like 100 episodes in the second season. And so it it is, you want to have the strongest character arcs and stuff, and there will be favorite scenes that all of the writers love that we ultimately have to go, you know what, that's never going to make it in because it doesn't fit into such and such structure of this particular story, or it doesn't support the overarching thing. So... A big part of when you're editing film is when you get all the bad film out and then you get it into shape and then you're editing a show, you go, we have to get rid of a couple of good scenes. That's when you know you're into solid rock material. And so selection and uh, and picking what to include is uh, a very difficult problem. And there's tears when we go, like, we're never gonna do that scene sometimes. Uh,
1: so what kind of input or mandate do you get from your studio and network as the writers' room as to approaching that IP in terms of sticking very closely to mythology or doing certain things they want you to do? Or not do, perhaps.
5: <laughs> For Hannibal, Brian did not have, didn't take input, so. That's why it is so brilliant, I will say. Uh, I think the Flash, I mean, CW and Warners was really great about letting Andrew and Greg Berlanti and Jeff Johns do their thing, because these are three people who know their comics, who know the characters inside out. Uh, Jeff Johns' favorite character is Captain Cold, so people weren't going to argue with him on how do we craft that story. But um, I think they were very generous, so I can't say much Mm -hmm. in the process.
6: There's like two kinds of executives. There's the one who has read all the IP and knows the material better than you do. And they're really great to have a certain kind of conversation with. And you have to, have to give them the benefit of they have the best interest of the thing at heart. And then there's others who sort of are vaguely familiar with it and try and react to each additional outline or pitch or script as, as if they're a viewer who has a lot of other choices. And so you have different kinds of conversations with different kinds of executives, and, um, and so for some of them it is like you're, you're overlooking this really great thing that's in the original IP, and for other people they'll say, I know that that's in the original, but it isn't playing as you've written it, and you've got to keep pushing the ball up if you're going to convey to an audience that thing that was in the book.
0: And to that point of sort of holding the key to the IPs and that idea, how do you go about interacting with either the original creator of the IP or maybe the original producers of that IP?
2: Can I talk about a feature for a second, even though this is a TV panel? Um, so I worked on uh, The Grinch when we were first starting to develop it, and it's it was an interesting dynamic because the Seuss estate held the IP, and then we were the production company breaking the story. That book is like six pages long. It's not just a movie ready to be made, and I think I think one of the things that was super important, because they were also, it's a huge, very, a lot of people know the Seuss books. So that's, they were coming into it with, don't ruin this, please don't ruin this. And so one of the things that, you know, was part of our actual process of working with IP holders and partners we were bringing on, and I would give this advice to any young independent producer who's looking to option something, is listen to them. Hear what they're nervous about, Understand why, know what they're very excited about in terms of their brand, and then constantly reinforce and do it, don't lie, actually <laughs> embed that into every stage of the game. So the first time you start talking about what are we what is the message of this movie? And we distilled the Grinch down to really almost like the dynamic between when you're a kid and then, and I don't know if this is how it ended up, because I went to Hasbro and didn't finish the Grinch at Illumination, but was we talked about, you know, sort of that feeling you get in the holiday season when you look at the snow and it's kind of magic. That little thing inside of you, that kid sense of magic is probably everywhere. And then that feeling you get and as an adult where that starts, you kind of lose that a little bit, where it starts to bury itself so down deep that you can't find it again. That's the Grinch and then there's Cindy Lou. So we talked about that's the dynamic, and then the Seuss estate felt very, very comfortable in that place. And the other thing that I would always recommend is if you're working with an IP holder, you're working with someone whose IP that you want to make into a TV show, don't cut them out of everything because it just creates so much anxiety. Bring them along with you every stage of the game and be just totally honest. When you can't do something, it's okay. Walk them through why, but bring them along for the ride because you will have such a better relationship if you do.
6: I can talk about Altered Carbon. Richard Morgan is this brilliant guy who's written a ton of science fiction novels and also a lot of video games. And after the writer's room was up for a few weeks, he was like, can I come visit? And we're like, what if he hates it? Because we (laughs) so admire him. So he came for a short visit and he really loved what we were doing. Because turning a book into a TV series takes a lot of choices and you might leave him behind. And then he loved it so much he came and stayed with us for a week. And uh, it's really when you go, okay, all this whole world that we're building on sets and with special effects and with actors and stuff all came from this guy's head. And he's on the couch looking at our hearing us pitch out ideas is a little bit intimidating at first but then it has turned into a phenomenal relationship and you know you get into certain things in a writer's room where you paint yourself into a corner and he would go well i had this idea that i never used blah 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 blah. and he he would like pull us out um and so anyway it was a it, it was a risk Because a lot of times authors hate the stuff that gets made out of their things. There's Right now, Harper Lee's Estate is suing a play based on To Kill a Mockingbird because it changed it a little bit. And so uh, we were just fortunate to have an author who who loved the show and came in and was willing to roll with, this is going to be a different thing than your books in a good way and uh, to play along with that.
1: Uh, what's it like for those of you who work on shows with shared universes that have crossover potential? How does that kind of work interacting with those other creators in rooms and do you find that uh, limiting or freeing or in, you know, challenging in interesting ways? Mm-hmm.
4: I
5: think it's... I don't know. I mean, I think it's fun. They'll drop writers into like rooms. Like, first season, I they dropped me in Arrow's room for a little bit just to make sure Barry Allen and the Flash people were represented correctly. We had Arrow writers in the Flash. We had... We had do
4: we have legends? Um, I, I don't remember. I don't, we,
5: well, we shared a writer on Legends on, and yeah. Flash, so I. That's
4: probably what. Yeah, that's because we Grania. had Grania. Yeah. yeah.
5: So I, I think it's super cool that we're able to pull characters from all different kinds mm-hmm. and, um, and talking to Supergirl about you know when Flash goes went to Supergirl. So, um, logistics wise, I'm sure the showrunners think it's crazy, but <laughs> I'm not a showrunner, so I think it's great. <laughs> <so>. <laughs>
4: Yeah, I mean, I think it's a lot of fun to to see characters you live with every day appear on another show because, for all intents and purposes, that character is now being written by another writer who's not as familiar. So there's always a slightly different take on it, and you do have people who kind of like make sure it's not super out of the box. But um, you know, what's really nice, I you know, there were it gave a lot of um, sort of support staff chances to like write scenes and stuff and kind of like pitch ideas because they sometimes they know the shows. The other show is better than the writers on that one show because they just don't have time to watch it. Um, so that was a lot of fun just to sort of see everyone get involved with the whole process.
5: And I would say, yeah, getting to write characters that you don't usually write. Like my first episode of The Flash, we had um, Felicity from Arrow, who is a dream. Um, and to, to getting to write her and meeting her and working with her was awesome. So I feel like it's
1: fun. Um, Britta, any potential for a Sabrina crossover?
3: (laughs) I know you can't answer that. What can you tell us? (laughs) Let's make some breaking News right here.
4: Britta's not here.
3: I think we're being recorded.
0: (laughs) Turn it off now. Going back to the, the writer's room for a second, how important was it to your showrunner that you were intimately familiar with that IP? Where you asked to read all the comics, all the books, watch everything ever done in that universe? Or were they like, okay, we have enough people on staff already familiar with that IP. We just want good writers, maybe.
3: Yeah, I had never read an Archie comic before, before um, I, I got... Uh, well, before I got the meeting for Riverdale, and then after, and then I read a bunch, but there's 75 years of them, so I didn't read them all. Um, no, but what I did was, uh, my, my friend Brandy is like a big fan, and so I, I was like, Brandy, I'll buy you drinks all night long as long as you talk to me about uh, uh, the Archie comics, and she's like, great, this is, I've been waiting for this phone call my whole life. <laughs> um, and so she just gave me a primer. Um, uh, the nice thing about the Riverdale room is that Roberto, our showrunner, is a super fan. Like he, he's got an encyclopedic knowledge. So I don't think uh, he was necessarily looking for writers who could, uh, who knew a ton about it, because he was like, "I already know everything. It doesn't matter." <laughs>
5: uh, well, I think first season of the Flash was. Hel- I didn't read the Flash before I interviewed the job, and. Um, and, and when we got there, I was like, oh, my God, I'm the only one who doesn't read comic books or The Flash. But when he got to the room, um, he had hired everyone who, had, who don't know how to read comic books except for one guy. So I think it goes to what Britta was saying. Um, Greg and Jeff and Andrew were such big fans of the show. I mean, characters, they already know. They don't need more people like them. They need people with different skill sets, writing action, character, humor to fill the room. And of course, once I got we got the job, we got some boxes and boxes of mm-hmm. flash, you know, super like oh, so literally an entire bookshelf. So that was our research. But before that, I feel like we were just talking about characters as mm-hmm. if they were normal characters, and all the superhero aspect is just icing on the cake.
4: Yeah, I mean, I know for our show. Um they specifically, they looked, I mean, by the nature of the room and, and looking at the writers, I mean, they were, they definitely hired people who had never picked up a comic book before. And I, and I know, um, there's two showrunners on our show, and, you know, um, Mark Guggenheim obviously, um, is a comic book writer and he is, uh, sort of the, the godfather of the comic book world in our, in our office and he knows everything. Um, and then we have one showrunner, the other showrunner, who, honestly, I don't think he's ever cracked open a comic book. In fact, um, he's always asking, like, do they have to wear their costume? He's always asking, like, does there have to be a fight? Can't they just talk? Um, And so we actually sort of fulfilled one of his wishes. There was an episode this... Year, it was a bottle episode where literally they're just trapped in the ship and there is, there is no fighting, there is no costumes, um, and it's actually his favorite episode. <laughs> so, um, you know, and you can still tell good stories that way. So I think, I think you know, it, sometimes it takes someone to think outside of the box, like, you know, what if we don't have them be superheroes? Um, I think sometimes that can help.
6: Yeah, on Altered Carbon, the season two writer's room, everybody is intimately familiar with the season one episodes, you know, can quote them. Can talk about them by episode number, by character, and everybody had read some of the books. But then, at one point, uh, Lita Caligridis, as a sort of creative experiment, said, "We're all going to read the third book all at the same time, just so that we're all together at the same thing." And although the season is may may have nothing to do with that, it generated incredible conversations because there's a way in which you give yourself over to a book and in and, and uh, Go through the world. So I would say everybody in there now is very, very familiar with the IP, and there aren't 10,000 comic books. There's just three novels and a series of TV.
1: How about you, Colleen? Did they raid your childhood bedroom and make sure you had played with
4: all those things?
2: <laughs> well, actually, I did. Um, the, the, when I came onto to Littlest Pet Shop, when I was interviewed, I was like, I, I purchased nine of the little pugs because they sold them with a poop. And I was like, this is the best toy ever. <laughs> um, but I, when I build my rooms, when I hired my writers, I, I need a balance. So I, I, if I've met... Um, it, it basically, I kind of have it so the deck is stacked on both sides. So um, when I hired Nick, uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, Nick and Nick's writing partner Kelly, they have this zany, fantastic sensibility and really kind of kooky uh, comedy style, and I needed that. I had a lot of people who were sort of very like earnest, and I wanted something that would just shake it up, especially in the rooms when we have you know punch-up sessions or we'll have a story summit. You want the person who you kind of want the person who's knows the lore inside and out, and especially on our Equestria Girls and our My Little Pony shows, you want somebody who's gonna say, um, they would never say that. And then you want somebody to go like, but what if? And so you kind of have that dynamic. And, and I, I work to build it. I think most showrunners as well do, in terms of like, you don't want all green. You want some pink, purple, mm-hmm. green, and blue.
1: So we had a whole panel on this last year at WonderCon, but just briefly, how have you found the reaction of the fandom to your interpretations of these properties uh, working on these shows, and has that uh, reaction ever influenced your writing or stories or arcs or things?
2: I thought it was scary at first. The My Little Pony fandom is intense. (laughs) And I was doing Equestria Girls, so I was coming on to almost that sort of what are you going to do with this and um, I think we've been embraced it's the same thing Littlest Pet Shop is going to come out and there was a show running our new show will come out in April and I I die a little inside every time I see somebody go I miss the old cast and I'm like but love the new cast too you can still watch those shows so I, I get, I'm very hyper aware of it, and um, I sort of, it, I think you you accept it, you know it, you're aware of it, you love your fans, and they're the reason why you have the shows that you do. But then at the end of the day, when the writer's room door closes, you kind of let it all go and say,
3: what's a good story? Um, <laughs> I don't, uh, Riverdale doesn't have any fans, so this question's is <laughs> me gonna... <laughs> No, uh, I, I, um... Yeah, no, I I come from fandom and so I've been a fan before and so I feel very excited and lucky and a little intimidated that I'm now writing on a show that has such like a large and passionate fandom uh, and I feel, um, and I hear their voices every single day on the internet because they tell me <laughs> uh, what they want to see from the show. Uh, the, the thing that I think sometimes they forget though is that they've just seen an episode um, and we've already written an episode. We've already written the finale of like season two. You know, so they they they're when they're reacting to something. There's no possible way for that to really affect the show because we're so far ahead. And not only are we, you know, writing six or eight episodes ahead of what they're seeing, and sometimes more, like in the case of the first season. Um, but we've already planned out the rest of the season. So um, you really have to just move forward with the faith that. Uh, everyone working on the show thought these were good ideas. <laughs> uh, executives <laughs> thought they were good ideas. You know every, that, that these story choices were made for a reason, and and go forward and hope that the audience agrees with you and follows you along. And um, that's all you can really do: is just try to make the best show you
4: can. Um, yeah, actually, on on what Britt is saying, some sometimes you uh, you know, I mean, obviously, on our show, we pay we do pay very close attention to. Um, sort of internet reaction even though we say we don't but we totally do every morning <laughs> and we um, and sometimes you are able to like catch reactions you're like oh well people are responding to this sort of relationship and we're not too far away from that maybe we can steer a little bit closer and see how it goes um, so you know it can sometimes act as sort of like live audience reaction I you know as much as I think we would hate to admit that um, but we do pay attention we do see what people are responding to. Um, yeah, but a lot of times, like what Brit is saying, like you know, decisions have already been made, and it's way too late. <laughs> but um, there are certain things, maybe, that are down the road that you haven't addressed yet, and that you um, kind of like realize that the appet- uh, the audience has an appetite for.
5: I think they've captured it perfectly, Britt and Ray. Um, yeah. It's, yes. <laughs> I, I,
3: I also think it, it, it's um, uh, hard to sometimes to understand why these decisions are made because decisions. Get, the fans don't know why a show is the way it is. They just see the show. Um, and so they don't know, like, is a character not in this episode? Um, because uh, the writers hate that character. <laughs> Pers- like, it's a personal thing, and we're trying to target that fan specifically and make them have a bad night. Or was well, it a scheduling problem, or, you know, yeah. they missed their flight, or, you know, like, their dog died and the actor couldn't be there that day, or whatever, you know, like, there's, there's like, it's a mistake to think that the show is, like, the perfect culmination of the ultimate creative vision, and it's exactly how it was always supposed to be, and that's, like, it's perfection. Like, like it's... There's a million moving parts, uh, and all, a lot of things affect um, the show that you make, including like money and availability and mm-hmm. all kinds of things. Uh, uh, and so um, the most important thing is when you, when you watch a TV show, to just assume that all the decisions are um, about your feelings specifically. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's about you. It's all about you.
6: Yeah. That's interesting. Um <laughs> <laughs> Outdoor Carbon Room is interesting. The writers, and a lot of writers, are fans. If not, you know, foaming-at-the-mouth fans for the particular thing you're working on, they are very familiar with the experience of fandom because it takes a lot of work to become a television writer. And the only thing that can motivate you is you go, this is a thing I love more than anything else. And so there are always fans in the room, and people understand the fan relationship because they have a fan relationship either with another show or with their own show. And uh, although Netflix drops their shows so that all 10 hours go at the same time, on other shows, I've w- monitored Twitter live. It's hilarious. That's
1: so
6: you find somebody who's like hating on something that was your favorite <laughs> bit, and then you just go, come on.
2: <laughs> it's also very depressing.
6: <laughs> I, I laugh at it because, you know, th- there's some very witty people on there. <laughs>
0: Uh, so you guys touched uh, already a bit on this topic, but how do you stay fresh and generate new stories in a universe that may have either three books or decades of storylines?
4: <laughs>
6: you, you, you live your life. Do do you watch, you read, you think, you talk. to it, A writer's room is, in a lot of ways, a big conversation. And somebody will come in and say, I had an argument with my kid, and it was, went the following way. And then three days later, you go, you know that argument you had with your kid? that'd be a really good topic to explore for this character relationship. Or somebody will say, I saw this really obscure you know, art movie that nobody saw and talk about it. And all those themes kind of like work their way into a show.
2: One thing that I, I know wasn't, I, and I didn't work on all nine seasons of um, Pony, but I know a lot of the writers said that one of the things that got heavy was how much lore they were building and how how much that started to control story like later when you have your seventh season you have your eighth season and that was always something that i heard is like if be careful be careful of the lore is to try you try to kind of not let that lead you um as as much as you possibly can resist it just because it the longevity becomes uh, I don't know what the word is, but this motion. yeah <laughs> Restrictive. Thank you very much. You must be a writer. <laughs> but yeah.
1: Okay. Uh, just going down the line, if you could work on or adapt any piece of IP to TV, what would it be and why?
2: Uh, I was ju- I just saw, this is because it was just now. I saw a guy dressed as Where's Waldo walking across and I was like, why haven't we made that TV show yet? They did? It was in the 90s. Yeah, Let's make cou- it
3: again. <laughs> <laughs> it was really good, but you couldn't find it.
2: Yeah.
6: So. <laughs> <laughs>
3: um, um, I, I think there should. Is there a Ms. Marvel TV show in um, the works? Um, I'm, Movie. Not Captain Marvel. Ms. Ms. Ma- oh, Ms. Marvel. Marvel. Oh yeah. No. Because that's what I want to see.
4: Um. Someone could tell me if I'm wrong, but I, I there's this um, kung fu movie I watched over and over again when I was a kid called Five Deadly Venoms, and um, I th- I thought maybe Tarantino might have had the rights to it or something, but um, I freaking love it, and I would totally make that into a anything at this point, point. Um, and it's basically about like you know. Um, these five like masters of kung fu and they're, they're all like one's a cobra the other one's a snake one's a toad and they kind of like all go bad kind of and so like one of them has to like this one like sort of like um, young apprentice who has studied all the styles has to go and like hunt them down basically um, and it's so cool um, and everyone should go see it if you haven't seen it yet um, but I would totally make that into um, tv or movie
5: um, I know they made this pilot a couple of years ago. Nancy Drew. Um, yeah. I would love to do that as a TV or movie. Did they do a movie? Oh, they did with Emma. Emma, what's her name? Robert. 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 Yeah, yeah.
2: Would you make it dark though, if you want TV? Yes. I think that would be so cool. I would be. I mean, I think
5: fans would hate me, but I would. Yeah. I don't mind aging her up a little bit. Maybe not Sarah Shahi age, but like, mm-hmm. but darker for sure. But like
4: Hannibal, so, dark, right?
5: I think yeah. there's a. Yeah. <laughs> She saw the mysteries and she eats people. Yeah. Like, she's now a, she's now a serial killer. Like so a whole
4: it. a whole act,
6: a whole act would be her like walking up to a house. Like. it's funny you mentioned Five Deadly Venoms. When I worked on Into the Badlands, we all yes. were <laughs> Yay! Yay, Into uh, the Badlands. We, we talked about Shaw Brothers movies all the time. Oh, yeah. And I was deeply familiar with them, and it made me a bit of a weirdo because I grew up watching those. <laughs> Um, if I could adapt anything I have two answers one is the Little House on the Prairie books are much darker than any adaptation has ever been that is a tough little girl who loves Butchering Day and dad is dad is like trash he keeps getting kicked out for unknown reasons from town to town nobody's ever going to make that but I would love to see like the Jane Campion version of Little House on the Prairie I'd watch a movie called Butchering Day (laughs) Yeah. Uh, but as this is a Comic Con, I had a favorite comic that sh- cast no shadow in fandom, so much so I read a bunch of them when I was a kid. And then I was at a convention like this, and the like, guy had them all in the, quart- the 25 cent box, the quarter box. I was like, I'm taking all of these. And it was called Weird War. It was a DC comic, kind of like eerie. But all set in war, and it would all be like, I have a magic amulet that will mean I can never die. And then, of course, he gets dismembered, and he wishes <laughs> he could die. But that would, that's sort of my
0: secret dream. That's a good all right, let's wrap things up. Where can people find you online on social media? If you have social media.
2: Yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I, I don't like. I don't not Hasbro branded or anything like that, but um, CMAX33 on Twitter, I'm pretty sure.
3: Um, I'm on Twitter at Ships Shipsit. And if you, if, I know it's, it's weird that my book was up here this whole time, but it's because it's coming out in a month and my publisher w- wants me to talk about it a little bit. So I'll just say that after this, I have a box of advanced copies of this book that are free, that I'm going to be at the Mysterious Galaxy booth, which is at the back of Hall A, uh, or like the, a, th- you know, at this, it's it's the bookstore at the back of the A. Um, and I'm going to be signing them until they run out. So so I'll do that right after this panel if you want uh, to get a copy of Ship It. And if I run out of books and you can't get one, um, they go on sale on May 1st.
2: Yeah.
4: Um, I'm on uh, Twitter and Instagram at, at Ray Utar, Rayutar, R-A-Y-U-T-A-R.
5: Uh, I'm on Twitter at Xinhua. Kai she was the French version of Chinese
6: <laughs> I'm on Twitter it started out mostly to amuse my nieces and nephews but now people follow me so you won't find a lot of Hollywood <laughs> stuff on there I'll put something on about today but it's Perry Michael R at Twitter
1: yeah. I'm on Twitter at underscore NJ Watson
0: and I'm on at TV calling thank you all for being here today and thank you to these five lovely people <laughs>
1: You can listen to this episode recording back on our Paper Team podcast. It's on iTunes and Stitcher and all those other things as well as paperteam.co. So thank you all so much for coming. Have a great rest
0: of your weekend. And that's a wrap on WonderCon 2018. Thank you to all our panelists and our amazing audience. If you enjoyed this panel and want to show us some love, you can leave us a review at paperteam.co slash iTunes. You can also get the show notes for this episode at paperteam.co slash 83. And as you've just heard, I'm on Twitter at TV Calling. Nick is at underscore NJ Watson. If you have any thoughts, feedback, ideas for future episodes, you can send them to ask at paperteam.com. Dot co and next week we are returning to one of our most popular topics with tv pilot 201 we want to help you be more proactive in the way you write your pilot so we're going to be talking about coming up with compelling titles compelling log lines and everything you need to know to set things up in your script to keep that reader interested we'll see you next week